Why does society have a fascination with crime? Do you sit at home on a Friday night and indulge in a marathon of blue bloods? Did you play cops and robbers when you were just a child? After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. Cheers. This is Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker. Apparently I'm wearing arseless chaps right now, um, which would be appropriate because my guest is certainly wearing them. Yes, absolutely. And he looks We're all amazing. wearing them. It looks amazing. And At 73, you can't imagine how good I look. <laughs> it's fabulous. <laughs> Giving it away already. Tom Astor, our co-host. Our guest today has spent his life as a civil rights and anti-war activist. He's a best-selling author, playwright, and if you're looking to organise a protest, he's your man. Please welcome the Forrest Gump of politics, my good friend David Mixner. <laughs> Hello, gang. How are you? Yeah, Do you like? Do you, are you okay with that? With the Forrest Gump of politics? I kind of threw it in there. And I'm like, it's sort of an insult, but it's actually kind of. Cute. I love it. Good. I love it. There you go. That's Listen, what, I'll take anything I can get at 73. You know. Come on, 73. As you, as can I, you, explain you are literally sort of. <laughs> oh, you're saying wicked, isn't he? Wicked? Well, you know, the, the fact of the matter is in this country. Uh, if you're 73, they have two stereotypes that instantly – one, that you've lost your mind, that you have nothing – that you still are not current, that you're giving advice that you gave You clearly lost your mind many, ago. many years yeah. ago. And two, that you can't hear. <laughs> so you say they're 73 and they immediately raise their voice by about six levels and scream at you, how are you – so one of, one of our close friends recently was with me and we went to our local um, deli and, uh, you know, he's the same age as me and I'm 47. And the woman looked at him and said, do you have your senior citizen's card? And my friend went... That's too good. Le- leant forward and went, what? sorry, what? And the woman went, do you have your senior but he's, but he's only 47 years old. I literally fell to the floor with laughter. And oh. I, I'm like, I looked at her, I'm like, you have no idea. You've just given me 20 years until he can be a senior citizen of joy. <laughs> so thank you. Tom, what are we drinking? We're just straight up vodka and tonic. We, we are not com- overcomplicating the issue today because our guest prefers, um, uh, doesn't, doesn't drink. I'm so. a recovering alcoholic. 37 years sober. You're not the first we've had on the show. What? No, no. I, I was the life of the party when I drank. But I gave you still up. are, by the way. But no one thinks I thought I was. I was so obnoxious mm. drunk. Well, but I'm not going to make a terrible mistake. We had an Irish writer, actually, on, on the show who who, um, who, who was also um, a recovering alcoholic and hadn't had a drink for, I mean, he was about, I think, 12 years or something. And I said, um, we were having Bloody Mary with the cocktail of the day. And he said, well, I don't drink. I said, easy, Virgin Mary. He said, I hate tomato juice. I was like, okay, okay, so what do we do? <laughs> so sorry, we're just keeping it simple today. Vodka, straight up vodka tonic. <laughs> Swedish vodka, if, if, if you want to make it a little bit more interesting. And David is drinking water. And David is drinking water. Very, very sensible. Now, David, you look amazing. You talk about your age a lot. You, you've been sort of threatening the fact that this is your last performance, your last this, your last that, for as long as I've known you. I'm just going to say that right now. And I've, heaven forbid anything does happen. But when I first met you, you were in a wheelchair and um, you were sort of sat in this, in, in, at this event that we were at and it was a, a salon evening being held by Alan Cumming. And I remember Susan... For vodka. For, was it even? Yes. I can't even remember the vodka. So there you go, it was for vodka. Because heck, you know, it's great to have an alcohol sponsor, people. But, um, I, you know, I, I don't remember too much about what was being said. And there were a lot of interesting things being said, I'm sure. And Susan Sarandon, I remember her being the sort of the host of the evening. 
the most extraordinary thing that happened that night was my wife Chrissy and I meeting you. Yeah, well, we became close friends that night. I think we felt like kindred spirits, like, first of all, what are we doing here? And we knew what we were doing there. We were filler for them. You know? <laughs> Nothing like being a seat filler. <laughs> exactly. Fodder or filler. And, uh, and we have the same values and the same principles, and we care about people. And uh, we were probably the only ones in the room talking about others and it, not themselves. Yeah. And that's the story of your life, though. And I think that's what struck both Chrissy and I as being something which, which is quite remarkable, is that you know, you, right now, obviously, people know your life. They know you've, you have an incredible history. And I didn't, mention, I didn't say the Forrest Gump of politics just lightly. If you know, obviously, we all know the Forrest Gump story, and he's everywhere, and he's been everywhere, and he touches everything that ever happens and every moment he seems to be a part of. But when I think about what's happened in politics over the years and, and the history, there are so many major events that you've had your hand in or you've, you've been connected to and you've made a difference. And I think that is remarkable. And, and going back to your sort of how giving you are, you know, you're obviously now publicly a gay man, but for many, many years, you were really just a human rights activist. And that's really what you are. You may be a gay rights activist, but you are a human rights activist. And Yeah, you know, this is a, an anniversary for me this year, my 60th year of organizing. Wow. For human rights, civil rights and peace. Um, 60 years. Uh, and, you know, when I was a kid living in a very poor family, we didn't have running water or uh, electricity to us 10. We were field workers in southern New Jersey picking crops. Uh, I got Life magazine. And I said, I want to see that all that happen in person. Mm -hmm. And then as I got older, I said, well, I want to meet the people who are making that happen. And I got to do that. And then I said, why can't I make it happen myself? And I've been very, very blessed. I'm a deeply spiritual person. Uh, a left-wing Catholic that believes in liberation theology, which, just to put it in a sentence very simply, is that you're put here on earth to help others, period. And I've done that for 60 years, and I'm very proud. And I continue to do that. And, uh, uh, you know, and it's what does keep me alive. But where did that come from, though, David? Because you didn't grow up in a necessarily a scenario. You just described your sort of the, the environment you were in, but your family, your life. It's it's was it just inherent in you? When, what was the moment? It was inherent in me. I think I think it was a, a, a given gift or a genetic. My parents were vehement segregationists. They were anti-Semitic. Uh, they were poor white people uh, who resented anyone who was got something that they didn't get or thought they were getting something free. Uh, my father physically abused me when I first went down south at 17 because uh, he was embarrassed and shamed of me with the neighbors. Uh, but, you know, I always say it's two Johns and a Martin. Uh, John Kennedy at 14 inspired me. He opened up. He said, there's a world out there and we're responsible for it. We're responsible for this planet and we're going to send you to different countries to do good works. And, you know, and he, when it came to civil rights, reluctantly, in the end, he did the right thing. And, uh, uh, and the other John, Pope John Twenty-Third, who allowed the uh, concept of liberation theology to emerge in the church through Archbishop Romero in El Salvador, who just was made a saint. Mm. Uh, and uh, the Martinist, of course, is Dr. King, who I had the honor of knowing and working for. Quite extraordinary. I mean, again, like all, all these major people who have had a huge effect on our 
on the world uh, and obviously on your life. But growing up in that environment, to make those sorts of decisions in a family where that wasn't accepted, how did you battle through that sort of childhood? How did you sort of get through that your Books. childhood? Books. Books. You know, the one thing that I will say about my parents, they were the classic American immigrants. Uh, they believed that the American education system was crucial, that we all have an education, and they wanted to see their kids go to school. My grandfather, uh, who we called Buzzard Bait, couldn't write his name, would sign documents with an X. Uh, and so my mother would take us to the local library every Saturday afternoon, and we had to read a book a week. And what were you into? What were you biographies reading? of great men and women, and uh, and in those books uh, about Gandhi or K- King's letter from a Birmingham jail or any number of other books that I can talk about or novels, uh, Leon Uris's Exodus. Would you discuss these books with your family though? No. So they, did they, they even know what you were reading? No, they just cared I could read big books. And I was a great reader. So you were sort of secretly being sort of taught how to, you know, the wonders of what was possible in a way. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to read about the world out there. Uh, you know, I thought I'd been switched to birth. A horrible mistake had been made. And uh, my real self went up to the Rockefellers and I got stuck here in, in picking crops and getting sprayed with DDT. You know? <laughs> and uh, so I don't know. You know, we, we never know all the ingredients that makes us who we are. I know how I ended up here because I saw suffering that I did not know was possible. Right. I saw people who, and I also saw courage that people rarely see. Well, the and, human condition is, very, is amazing how people in yeah, the worst conditions pick themselves exactly. up. Exactly, and I remember a, a, a civil rights icon who was probably not well known today named Fannie Lou Hamer. She was a woman, a pig farmer in Rulesville, Mississippi, and she had been permanently disabled because she was beaten repeatedly as she walked up the dirt road in Indianola, Mississippi, every day to register to vote. Now, in Mississippi at the time, you had to recite the Constitution from memory, word for word, in order to register to vote. Amazingly, every white person in the state could do that, and no, one African American actually did it. And uh, I went down as a young kid down to uh, Rulesville, where Mrs. Hamer lived and lived with her. She had a passel of kids. And uh, I was going to walk up that dirt road the next day with her. And I was young, and I started crying the night before. And I blabbered out, Mrs. Hamer, where do you get the courage? And she came over to me. She was a big woman. And she put her arms around me. She said, oh, honey, 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 courage is just a lack of options. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it resonated with me. You know, it, it, it really did. And it made me feel better because if you believe in the pure concept of freedom and of individual liberty and choice, and anyone has the right to make choices in their life, uh, then you realize you don't have any choice when it comes down to those basic values and principles. And I think I'm writing a new book called uh, Fear is the Enemy of Dreams. Mm. Yeah, well. And, and, I, and, and in it I say, you know, self-righteousness is the enemy of civilized dialogue. You know, we have become so self-righteous and we have all these tests that we have to pass in order to participate. 
And if someone doesn't pass their test, we won't let them join our movement. And as I point out, the whole purpose of a movement is to create a place, a home, where anyone's comfortable in joining, you know, and that it is our job who are in the forefront of the battle of these movements to make it comfortable and to welcome people, even though they came later than we are or maybe have not quite the pure ideology that we might, uh, or five years ago they said something terrible. It's like I said a movement should be like Israel. Everyone's welcome. Every Jew's welcome, you know. And You spent uh, your entire life, though, creating movements and, and I, I mean, you know, marching to get things done, gathering, gathering people, using the sort of momentum of, of people en masse. And, you know, one of your great achievements, in my opinion, and I'm sure you, know, you probably agree, is the moratorium. Yeah. And the moratorium was four people, three men and one woman with $100. In those days, 1969, no cell phone, no Xerox machine. And they're completely different. I mean, these days you, you organize something yeah. and you go on Instagram no or Facebook. No social media, uh, just a dial phone. No, no push buttons even at that time. And uh, the fact of the matter is within six months, uh, four young people in their 20s staged the largest demonstration in the history of the country until the Women's March. We had 800,000 people come to Washington. And on October 15th, a month before, uh, we had organized in every community having their own anti-war demonstration. And we had over 6,000 towns and cities participate, 400 colleges closed for the day, and 2 million people participate in that one. Mm. And And this led to the end of the Vietnam War. It was the turning point because what happened is we made it easy. We had the first labor endorsement. The United Automobile Workers was the first union to come out of the war. And that's because we created a home where they were comfortable and felt protected. And uh, that's the key, you know. I mean, it's not about proving yourself right or that you were there earlier than anyone else or that your record is pure and how could you associate with someone who did something horrible when they were two. Otherwise, you're being self-righteous. Yeah, it's it's a self-righteousness. And then the movement just becomes a feel-good place where we can all get together and someone's living room and say, oh, we have all the answers. We have the truth. We have the only way. The fact of the matter is I don't know what the truth is. Right. I know every day I get up, I get new information today that will change the truth that I viewed as truth yesterday. Mm. You know, and yeah. if you want to look at it, when I grew up, we were told it was fact that there were nine only planets, and we'd make these silly models with the nine planets. It turns out one isn't even a planet. Pluto. Poor baby. And now I read an article this week where there perhaps could be a billion solar systems in the galaxy. Now, that's a long ways from nine planets. Mm. Now, I could still sit here and insist where there's only nine planets, but I got knowledge. Knowledge is a gift, Mm. you know, and I was able to change my mind. And be excited the fact that there was a billion solar systems and wish I could live long enough to fly into them. But sadly, not everybody thinks like that. 
No, but I can't worry about them. Do you know what? Which is great because you know a, a, a majority of the people. But we were talking about the truth. I said before we started this podcast, I was, I was just telling you a story about a Polish woman who asked my son one day in the office what you know what he was learning at school. And he said, "Well, we're learning about the war, you know, and how England won the war." And she laughed and she went, "England didn't win the war," and left, turned and walked out of the office. This I had a. A woman from London, a very, very kind of right-wing, very close-minded woman at the time working in my office. Theresa who May? Said, who said... <laughs> who turned around and went... Who turned around and went, what the fuck did she just say? And I said, well, she just said that uh, that England hadn't won the war. She went, does she know what Britain did for the... And I went, well, well, hang on a minute. I'm going to go and talk to the lady. So I went and talked to this Polish lady. I said, what's your take on the war? She said, well, England didn't win. We were under the... You know, we were communists for the next 20... However many years. We were under... You sold us to Russia... You know, and not only that, not one in any country. Russia lost 25 million people in you know, the war. But it was the, the Warsaw Uprising. But that was, was the true crucial thing. Crucial part of the war. But when I came back in to tell this woman who was outraged by the, I said, oh, look, I've got a different take on this. And she went, I haven't got time to listen to this. Yeah, exactly. You know, there we go. So, the, exactly. so what I'm saying so is it's a sort of luxury to be able to find out that truth, isn't you it? You know, if we love knowledge, we have to be able to easily flow between truths. Oh. And to do that, you have to listen. And you have to read. And you have to read a book, not 15 minutes on Facebook. How do you know what's true and what's fake news? Well, you know, because God gave us a mind. You know, uh, people come up to me and tell me all the time, you have to do. And I said, excuse me. I don't head any organization. I'm not running for office. I'm a volunteer. If what I'm doing inspires you, I'm very grateful. But if you think you could do it better... Please be my guest. Be my guest, yeah. Start something yourself. I will celebrate our differences. And, of course, they never do because they're lazy and they don't have the knowledge. Are you anti-all war? Yes, I am. I'm a pacifist. And so there is no situation where war is the answer? No. I mean, you know, when you, when you look at the Second World War, and that's the famous one, what about Hitler? What would I have done in that war? I would have been a medic. Sort of like Andrew Garfield and Hacksaw Ridge. I mean, I understood. I would have <laughs> yes. gone without a gun, though. I would have never killed anybody. Uh, and I would have gladly risked my life for a greater good because everybody was being called in. Now, it's just the poor fighting the wars, you know? Uh, I believe in the draft. I think if everyone was exposed to the draft, we'd be in that of Afghanistan and Iraq years ago. Right, no, well, that's an interesting concept. You know, because if the Rock... My dad used to say to me, when the Rockefellers go to Vietnam, you'll go to Vietnam. <laughs> no, absolutely, of course. <laughs> Everyone was sort of draft dodging as, as Exactly, and the moment we had a lotto for the draft, the war ended. Hmm. When the rich kids had to go, the war ended. Yeah, well, they're the ones making calling the shots. You right? know, I mean, we have soldiers who, first of all, are on their fourth, fifth, sixth tour in a war zone who are losing their mental capacities, who are losing their limbs, who are suffering post-traumatic stress syndrome, who we don't pay enough. So 25% of the people in this country who are on food stamps are military families. Mm -hmm. Military families. No, no, it's, it's tragic. You know, and we're cutting back food stamps and we're hurting the military families in doing so. We expect them to live in poverty or... Uh, mental health facilities for the returning veterans. I've had some post-traumatic stress in my life, and I have joined a group of veterans uh, to deal with it who weren't thrilled when a civilian came into their group, but we're now all best buddies. 
and uh, 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 and to hear their stories and the memories that they're trying to somehow find the right place inside of themselves. And I understood it because it's I was hard to unsee things. Too. Well, yeah, and and tell me, I I went through the eighties where. My partner of 12 years and 382 of my friends died of AIDS. Which was a sort of a war in itself. And my closest 30 male friends, if I'd make a list, all died before 40. And I'm the only one left. So let's talk about that for a moment. Let's just step back. I mean, that's a that's a huge subject you've just landed on. I mean, we're talking. We've gone from absolutely the war situation, which you know you're an anti-war activist, but you absolutely lived through the sort of AIDS. When it was a highlight, at least, because it's still a problem. But right, but you lived right through that moment when many, many people you knew and loved obviously didn't. What was what was that moment like? What was that point in history? It was a like? Holocaust, and, and our government was ignoring us initially in the uh, to about eighty five, eighty six, ignoring the gay community, ignoring those with AIDS, which were predominantly gay at the time. Right. Uh, the the greatest, play, the greatest misservice that. And they didn't do it intentionally. That the CDC made was to call it gay-related immune deficiency initially, which labeled it as a gay disease. And thus, no money went towards it. Gay plague, I remember. Yeah. Them, them, and them undertakers wouldn't bury us. Dentists wouldn't see us. The AMA gave permission for doctors not to treat us. And doctors and nurses had the right to refuse to treat us. We had to create AIDS wards. Many hospitals wouldn't allow us to have them because other patients wouldn't come if we were in the same building. We were denied public accommodations. We were denied access to health care. Home health care workers wouldn't come. So I had to learn, <clears throat> in order to take care of my friend, how to change needles, how to clean tubes, how to put stab on shingles. You know, I mean, I'm a great home care nurse uh, for myself now. But uh, that is it. I mean, I laugh. You know, when people say how bad things are. You know, the first part of my, my teens and my 20s was spent totally in, in civil rights watching people die trying to vote. And then four members of my family died in Vietnam. And then that occupied all of my of course it 20s would. Yeah. Uh, fighting that war and mass death. You know, one month in Vietnam, we lost more than both Iraq and Afghanistan combined. 7,000 soldiers in one month, under average age 19. Yeah. Uh, And then I get to my 80s and come out in the 70s, and I thought, oh, well, you know, now I can be me and I can live a life. And my whole 80s was taken up with mass death of my best friends and my partner and young and then I get to senior years, and I'm stuck with Donald Trump. But the fact of the matter is, if we look where we were in the 60s and where we are today, it's far from perfect. But we have made extraordinary progress. This is the longest period of peace in, yeah. in history. And if we well, well, we're not at peace. No, we're but this is the longest war. longest period of peace, uh, as, as in we're not, you know, at essentially. In a major war. In, in major war. Well, um, I don't know. I think if your son died there, it would be a major war. Right. Yeah. And four just died last week. So yeah. is it different? It's just different types of wars. No, I mean a declaration of yeah. you know, declaration. We don't think it's a war because oh. we don't know anyone fighting it. Yeah. 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 It's easy for us just to glide through, through yeah. it. We have thousands of troops over there still. 
you know, in Afghanistan and the Taliban is reinsurgent. So, you know, uh, we're told for political reasons we have to retreat in a certain way or withdrawal or whatever word we want to use. But who wants to go to the mother who is the one whose son is the last one to die in a war and tell her that he or she had to die because it wasn't politically timing right? No, no, of course. It's absurd. So, I mean, it's absurd, you know. And, you know, you take the Vietnam War. We were told we had to stop the spread of communism and we had to die to save America. 55,000 young Americans died. And now Vietnam, with the same government we was fighting— the exact same ideological government we were fighting is our biggest tourist destination in, 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 uh, in Asia, Southeast Asia. And Vietnam is a important ally uh, of ours in the jockeying with China. So the very pe- people that 55,000 Americans and a million Vietnamese died of uh, are now our allies. I mean, why did they die? Mm. I don't get it. War is not the answer. David, I want to take you back a bit. And we've talked about, obviously, we've kind of jumping all over history, which is one of the amazing things with you. I, I feel like I'm a time traveler when I'm talking to you. Well, try to keep up, Nigel. No, it is. It's almost <laughs> impossible. It's, it's literally almost impossible. I know it's difficult. You're <laughs> it's very, it's, it's tough. But I, I know some of your stories. And one of the stories that I've, I've always just, it's, it's haunted me, really, is that you talk about as a young man coming out gay. But that there were times where, it was basically illegal to be gay in the United States. People don't realize that. They, a lot of young people, my kids grew up having you know, no idea or care whether someone is gay or straight or what that means. Uh, and they don't even use those That's words. That's a sign of our progress. Right. Yeah. They, well, they, when know. I grew up, uh, if you were gay, you were sent to a mental institution and you had a lobotomy done. I mean, that, that is crazy. I we mean, had is, one institution in California in one year do 4,000 lobotomies in, on gays and lesbians mm. in their one mental institution. Mm. It used to be called ice pick heaven because they just take a needle and drive it into yeah, your I brain. Yeah, I think the Germans started that, didn't they? Yeah, like, well, you know, they always were ahead of everybody. Yeah, right? they, they were trying it out. <laughs> they? It had to, had to be and, serious, uh, you know, even the Kennedys had a lobotomy done on one of their daughters at the time who was mentally challenged. Uh and then we could go to jail and be put in prison, if you review that. I remember when I went to my first gay bar, uh, I got my drink, and I was going to go move over to another table, and the bartender grabbed my hand and says, you can't do that. And this was 1970. And said, I said, why? And he said, because there's undercover agents, and they passed a law in D.C. that if you pick up your drink and move it to another table, that's solicitation. And they'll arrest you. Now, it wasn't implemented only in gay bars. And so I had to sit and not move in the bar or I'd be arrested. Uh, Excuse me. And, you know, the thing is, it was a horrible, horrible oppression. The suicide rate, the highest in the country, even higher at the time than Native Americans. Um, People's lives were destroyed. I remember being at dinner parties in the late 1970s where the police chief would be tipped off that there was a dinner party of just gay men. And they would raid the dinner party, come into your private home, line you up against a wall, put you into a paddy wagon, and take you downtown and take your picture. And the accusation was you're gay. Yeah. And the late 70s, that's legal at that stage. Well, 
No, I mean, the the thing is, it's still not legal in many states here Mm. in the United States. It doesn't exist, by the way. 38 states allow you to discriminate Mm. against LGBT Mm. people. They can turn you away from their hotels, their restaurants. And now we're seeing a, a new group of laws called religious freedom laws. And it's nothing more than saying... I don't have to serve a gay person. I don't have to give him public accommodation. I don't have to give him a job uh, based on religious belief. Now, all I say to the people out there, uh, how would you feel if you were Italian or Irish or Jewish or black and a law was passed where it gave anyone in this country permission to not give you public accommodations, not to serve you in a restaurant, not to uh, shop? To go into a shop, we see people not making wedding cakes for us. Right, exactly. That. But it's, this is based uh, on the religious, religious. Well, they say it's religious. I mean, people forget the civil rights movement when blacks were not allowed to do all these things in oh. the South. African Americans in the South, uh, it was based on religious beliefs. Yeah. God meant, you know, black and whites to be separated. Yeah. Cain and Abel. Yeah. That's just what they talked about. Right, absolutely. And uh, we forget that. And blacks would turn away from all sorts of churches all over the country. They weren't even allowed to enter places of worship in many places. And uh, the churches wouldn't speak out in the southern states because uh, their well-being depended on the contributions of the community and, and, and the people who believed in segregation. Wow. So we're not free yet. And Trump has rolled back many of the protections in the federal government for LGBTQ people. We've taken two steps back. Uh, Thirteen nations in the world now have the death penalty for gays. If I go to those and nations... Can, and, they're, and they're getting more. And they're, and they're implementing. They're, they're increasing. Malaysia, yeah. they don't have gay people, by the way. We read about this the other yeah, day. Yeah, they don't have it they don't, ex- they except do, their prince, they don't, yeah. of, of the sultan, who is as gay as a goose. Yeah. Uh, Same as Morocco. Yeah. Morocco. The Moroccan king. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hassan. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah, he's, you know. exactly. But he has a wife and kids, so he couldn't yeah, be, well, be gay. Yeah. But uh, the fact of the matter is, and we have uh, numerous nations where being gay is not the death penalty, but life imprisonment. At hard labor. So we have a long ways to go. However, however, if we fail to acknowledge where we've come from and how much progress we have made, it is impossible to build a future because we will become a victim. We will become sad, pathetic people whining about what happened to us. And I'm not a victim. In fact, I'm a quite noble person having gotten through that as a whole person. Absolutely, I would agree. And uh, far from a victim. And so it's very important to know your history and what you come out of and how much courage and determination to survive. And if you know that and if you have pride in that history and how people survive, and this goes in any country, you can build upon that because you know that you have come a long way. So what should people be doing today? Look into the future. Not whining about the past, not whining about Donald Trump. He's not going to go away. He's not going to start his outrageous stuff. Part of his game is to say outrageous things so we become distracted, and it's worked very well. You know, I don't pay much attention to him because I can't do anything about him. There's no levers of power that I can see. But you have an incredible blog live from Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> but you do, you know, get very political, talk about what's happening. You're yeah. not shy. Uh, I don't write the blog anymore because it's hard to focus. But uh, I talk a lot and I'm writing a fourth book. 
and uh, and I'm doing an, another performance this this uh, December. But if we don't know what we come out of and what a noble journey and what people did to get us to this point, how are we going to have any self-esteem and belief in ourselves to take us into the future? Now, I sit there and I just outlined a very bleak picture. However, it is absolutely possible in this election that we will elect the first gay president in history. You think so? Yes. Yes. I don't know if he will, but he is a viable, real candidate for the presidency of the United States that many Republicans love because in in this era of pounding on tables— and speaking, I call it hotly, I mean, you know, with passion, such passion that you scare people. You know, I always say if you have to raise your voice, you have no power. If you can sit across from someone and chat with them and get into a dialogue, change is coming. Change is coming. Do you think it's easier to make a gay man president than it is to have a woman president? I mean, you know, we're, 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 we're distracted by all these issues. I want a woman to be president, but I want someone who can defeat Donald Trump. And I want a, a person who's intelligent and capable. Now, I think there's six people running that fits that bill on the Democratic side. Two of them are women. And I wouldn't be upset if they got the nomination. I could easily support I mean, anything's possible. I, mean, I think, you know, you have Joe Biden. You have Bernie Sanders, who's probably my least favorite. You have Pete Buttigieg, you have Kamala Harris, and you have Elizabeth Warren, you know, who are real serious contenders. Then you have 15 others. And probably out of that 15, one dark horse will come up and occupy that sixth spot. And we'll be fine with us. And what a wealth of extraordinary people we have. A gay man, a black woman... Another woman who's a professor who's very bright, you know, and a person who's 70 some years old who, you know, could possibly be our president. It is an amazing thing if you look at it. It is an amazing thing. It, it is hard because it obviously, you know, the chemistry, and charisma, and being good on television and being able to present are such sort of key elements of being becoming president when they have oftentimes little to do with heart and soul and really, you know, what makes a person good and decent and solid. And, and there's such distrust for politicians that, you know, and I, I, I watch the, polit- you know, these politicians and myself and I sit there and I'm thinking, didn't you just say something different a few years ago? Or I don't really believe you. Or they have to weigh, they, they have to, everything has to be weighed so carefully as to, you know, is this going to resonate well? Well, with that's the- Buttigieg's secret. Right. He's got his secret and his strength. Uh, and, and let's not forget, we are a nation that elected John Kennedy, the first Catholic president, and Barack Obama, two of the most intelligent people filled with grace ever in the history of our presidency. You know, and that's Buttigieg. He sort of is the Barack Obama, John Kennedy of this election. Doesn't mean he's going to get elected. No, I agree. I sat up he's and calm. listened to him. He's calm. He doesn't get distracted by Donald Trump. He talks about issue. He talks about going into a new generation, a new era for American politics. And that's what people want to hear. They want to hear hope. And we have always wanted to hear hope as a country. We always wanted to feel proud of our president. 
And that still exists. We talk about all these angry people and we got to have a woman and we got to have we can't have a man or we got can't have a gay man. We can't have, you know, a woman for these are fake issues. We can have anybody now we want. It's just who is going to capture the hearts and minds of the people that will present a case on our behalf for the future to Donald Trump in the election. I happen to think that Pete Buttigieg, from what I've seen, is the most likely. However, any of the others would be fine and have that opportunity. But they can't do it just running against Trump. They can't do it by pandering to stupid debates that have nothing to do with the rest of the American people. And they have to create a vision, uh, as Mario Cuomo used to call it, or Ronald Reagan used to call it, that city on the hill. And uh, uh, so, you know, look, I can make a case how much Pete Buttigieg suffered as a gay man coming up through the ranks. Or uh, Certainly we know that Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris in all sorts of ways faced discrimination as women. Uh, I accept that. I would love a woman president. I would, I would love Kamala Harris to be president. I have no problem with that. But to I, debate I, whether a man has a right to run— Everybody has a right to run. Everyone has a right to present their case to the American people. Everyone should. I'm glad there's 20 candidates. I'm glad there's probably room for one or two more front runners, because that means we have to examine and think who best do we think can take us into the future and make that case effectively to the American people. You're a storyteller. And you, you always have been, and just listening to you talk, I mean, it's one of the most amazing things about you. You can sort of wax poetic on, on almost any subject. I'm Irish, for God's sake. Uh, well, <laughs> for sure. Probably the greatest On a show with a Brit. Give me a break. Two Brits. Two Brits. <laughs> Two Brits. But, you know, so you've, you, you've spent your life, you know, you've, you've written multiple books. You've done several one-man shows. You use storytelling to get the point across. How effective do you think that is? You know, how have you found it to be your ability to sort of tell stories and get people to sort of see things from a different dimension, not just black and white? Well, I'll tell you a story <laughs> that will highlight. Senator Edward Kennedy and I became good friends. And he was a champion for HIV and AIDS. And he asked me to come in to advise him on some issues. And he took me to his capital. He had a little office in the capital, And we sat there talking. And I could have sit there and said, this is what you have to do. This must be done. I demand this. It's got to be done, blah, 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 blah. And he probably would have acknowledged me in an effective way, and I probably would have left thinking I had succeeded, and maybe in some points I had. On the other hand, I sat down and told him what my daily life was like. And in a second, he realized that we were going through the same pain that he was of losing his three brothers, his sister in a plane crash, the death of a mentally challenged sister. And he said, I understand. And our job is to lay out our vision in a way that people said, I belong to that. I want that. You know, I want my child to have that kind of world. I don't want him to drown in climate change. Creating a movement. So to reach them... You have to show them that you understand their lives. If you preach to them or lecture to them or call them ignorant or stupid 
or rednecks or any other words or right-wingers, what's that going to get us? We're going to feel good about ourselves and put ourselves on a high. There's no dialogue going on there. No dialogue. Now, I might disagree with a person on 80% of the things, but what I'm learning, for example, and this is something, knowledge is changing me. I've not been terribly fond of the American evangelical movement. That's no secret. But I learned and I read an article this week that said that the young evangelicals are good on LGBTQ rights. They they differ with their parents. And I said, why aren't we doing something with them? And I immediately got on the phone and started calling people, you know, who had access to, let's get some dialogue going with these young evangelicals. Though we might disagree on climate change or what their religious beliefs may be, but there's an opening there. And so, so look for the openings. Look for the openings and then look for the language that will bring you together, not separate you. Gandhi says we have to value our words as much as we value our actions. And if you get in an argument to prove yourself right, no one wins. No one wins. It doesn't make any difference if I'm right. So certainly not tweeting. And Well, you can tweet, but you can tweet knowledge. You can treat knowledge. Not, it's ac- possible. not, not accusations, name well, calling. Well, what, what good is that going to do? It's going to make you maybe get more followers. It's maybe going to make you feel powerful. But what good does that do for the rest of us? It doesn't feed kids. 14% of the American kids tonight in America, mostly white, by the way, overwhelmingly white, as a matter of fact, will go to bed tonight hungry, hungry. and malnourished. Yeah, I know, poverty is Almost one terrible. out of every five of American children will suffer hunger tonight in their sleep. Being right and being viewed as powerful is not going to feed those kids. It's not going to feed them. And our job is to put food in their mouth because they have no power. And if I use my power for self-aggrandizement or and I have at times I'm, I'm imperfect my life is imperfect let me just say that very imperfect and well, sometimes as, as, as is almost everybody's everyone is but I'm just dealing with mine I know it's imperfect I know I've made mistakes I know I have brushed aside knowledge that I shouldn't have at times but our job is to feed those kids not to be some checkmate on a checkerboard. I mean, you know, obviously having a meal at school is one of the one ways they get kids to go to school. Well, they're cutting school funding for food in schools. And, you know, uh, we go back to the days when catsup was a vegetable. Uh, so are we talking to any Ketchup is still a vegetable. Yeah. Are we still talking to any of those families whose kids are going to bed hungry at night and say, we hear you, and this is what we're going to do to feed your children? Are we talking to them? Not in ways that we should do. No. No. Uh, my son goes to public school and he told me that ketchup was a vegetable. In fact, that's, it's, if you, you, know, you have to have a vegetable, but ketchup passes mm-hmm. as a vegetable. So, it's more sugar in it than Coca-Cola. No, it's, 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 it's absurd. It's crazy. It's absurd. It's crazy. And, you know, uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I really feel that our job is to organize in a way that anyone can join us, that they know that we have heard their journey that they know and are aware that we understand their journey and that we want to help. 
You've got a very caring and loving heart, David, and it's, it's, I've witnessed it over and over and over again. You have time for everybody. I'm who, just a human being, as we all right. are. Right. No, absolutely. And, and, but I can you, get bitchy. I, and I, I, <laughs> You've seen I, it. I, I've seen it. And, you know, and it can be fun. You know, and certainly, you know, talking about time and the fact that you've been involved with so many great things. And, you know, and we, I, I mentioned again this, the Forrest Gump aspect, but it is this year is Woodstock 50 coming up. I was up. there. You were there, the original Woodstock, On 1969. Acid, underneath, I had a backstage pass that Michael Wadley, who was one of the producers of Woodstock, got me. I went backstage, took some acid, and laid under the stage and heard Janis Joplin's foot hit the board singing me and Bobby McGee above me. Probably one of the most important nights of my life. And <laughs> <laughs> the rest, yeah. Which goes to the heart of something else. For God's sakes, lighten up, people. Right, absolutely. You know, if we don't have fun in our life, how are we going to describe it to others? If we don't have laughter in our life, how are we going to teach others to laugh? Because we'll come across as some cold Trotskyite. You know, so how was Woodstock? What was what was Woodstock like at that moment? I now live in Woodstock, by the way, as you know. I've moved to. It's Woodstock. a different place. It's a very different. place. But they're having an anniversary concert somewhere that, up there. Well, exactly, and that's Woodstock Fifty this year. It's a big yeah. deal. So everyone's like you know regrouping and it's very excited. But well, none of us knew it was going to be that big. None of us knew, and I hadn't really hardly heard of it until Michael Wadley came into the moratorium offices and we were head of the moratorium and he wanted to give us passes and. We all said no, and then at the last minute, I said to myself, that's my birthday, August 16th. I'm gone. So I didn't tell the other coordinators because I didn't want to get shit. I just told them I was going home. And friends and I got into a Volkswagen Beetle bus, painted psychedelically, high from the moment we left Washington, D.C. And by the time we got to the Jersey Duke Turnpike, about every third car was a Volkswagen Beetle hanging out, cheering, waving at each other. And to where we got to Woodstock eventually, up 17, we had to walk eight miles. Because there was such a backlog of Well, people just got out of their cars and left them because there was no place to park. They had no idea. They expected 50,000. How many was there? 300,000. I hope that doesn't happen this time. And it was... One of the greatest experiences I've ever had because people genuinely were caring for each other and sharing food and sex was a little more liberal than in other places in the country. Uh, laughter, music. Oh, my God, the best music I've ever so heard. So can rock life. and roll save our soul? Absolutely. I mean, Elvis, Janice, you know, Elton. You know, I love music. I think music is... The great unifier of us all. Get us in a stadium and do a concert to feed kids, and we're happy. It's one of the arts that it's one of the only arts that can reduce us to tears. I mean, you can sit and stare at a Jericho painting and try. If you listen to one of my speeches, you could be reduced to tears. Well, could that be (laughs) considered music? (laughs) No, it's he is lyrical. (laughs) Well, he's Irish. (laughs) Uh, But no, it was amazing. It was simply. One of the great moments of our history. It will never be repeated. It can never be duplicated. Uh, and we shouldn't try. We should move on to the next thing. We should indeed. Yeah. David Mixner, you once again have just brought this conversation full circle. We've talked about a multitude of issues from, from music to AIDS to war. But most of all, you talk about love and caring. And that is what I think what makes the world go round. 
it's love after all. That's it's the bottom line. Love after all. If you can't love others, you you can't help. Word. Yeah. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, Thank Bill. You. Cheers. Thank you.